verse 1 to 11. start reading. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is who are the circumcision we who worship the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting church, as for legalistic righteousness, fortress. But whatever was for my uh, was to my profit, I now consider laws for the sake of Christ. What is more. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake have lost things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Lord be with you. Well, morning, everyone. Uh, that is very sad news, isn't it, about Elias, uh, his son, Timothy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Elias and his wife, Brenda, served the Lord in Juba in South Sudan. And it's actually only a couple of weeks ago that he was ordained as the pastor of St. Matthias' Church in Juba. Um, so this is a great, great sadness. And uh, do please remember them in your prayers. On a more cheerful note... You may remember at the beginning of the year uh, in our vision day that uh, our dear brother White shared the vision the Lord had laid upon his heart to start a Bible college in Malawi. And uh, we were very excited about that. And in order to do that, he started uh, preparing a proposal for a doctorate. And the exciting news this week is that his doctoral proposal was received and accepted by Northwest University. A significant milestone on that journey and we do heartily congratulate you, brother. Good. Well, let's have our Bibles open, please, at Philippians 3, and um, I will pray for us as we come to the Lord's Word together.
Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving to us the scriptures. We do thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. So we pray that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful, and wonderful. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Misunderstandings um, are an inescapable part of life. And, of course, they come in many different forms. Uh, Sometimes a misunderstanding can be rather humorous. And uh, personally, I rather like the story of the Englishwoman of an earlier generation, a true story, I believe. This lady went to Switzerland looking for a holiday cottage, and eventually she did find one that she liked. But uh, when she got back to the UK, she realized that she hadn't inquired about the bathroom facilities. So she wrote to the Swiss estate agent asking for details about the WC, referring, of course, to the water closet. But uh, the Swiss estate agent wasn't familiar with the initials WC, so he assumed that she was referring to the wayside chapel. And uh, he replied to the lady as follows, quote, My dear madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is located nine miles from the house, uh, in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees. It holds up to 230 people, but it's only open on Thursdays and Sundays. It may interest you to know that uh, my daughter was married in the WC. In fact, that was where she first met her husband. I would especially recommend a visit on Thursdays when there is an organ accompaniment. The acoustics are marvelous. Well, that was a fairly harmless and perhaps amusing misunderstanding. A far more serious misunderstanding today is in the minds of many people who misunderstand the message of Christianity. So take, for example, the question that I believe arises from our passage this morning, which is, how can I be good enough for God? Or to put it another way, is being good good enough for God? That's the question we're going to be thinking about together this morning. Uh, To the extent that people ever do think about it, uh, many people, I believe, would say, well, yes, I think being good does make me good enough for God. And uh, our passage this morning reminds us that many people in the first century thought the same thing. Now, last week, we considered Paul's challenge to Christians to shine like stars, to stand out from the crowd. And we saw that in order to do that, there are certain priorities that we actually have to embrace. Uh, Working out our salvation, uh, not complaining or arguing, and looking out for 
and following the example of gospel role models. But in our passage this morning, we find a new element. There is a danger to be avoided. And that is the danger of misunderstanding what Christianity is really all about. Now, just in case you're thinking to yourself, well, I would never possibly do that, won't you please remember that there was a time when even the brilliant Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, completely misunderstood the message of Christianity for himself. And uh, it wasn't just on one or two minor points of doctrine here and there. No, his misunderstanding was so comprehensive that the risen Christ had to intervene in his life on the Damascus Road and bring about a complete revolution in his thinking. Now, I'm sure that you would agree with me that a Christian's testimony can be a wonderfully encouraging thing. And uh, here in chapter 3, we have the closest we ever get, I think, in the New Testament to Paul's personal testimony as to how he came to a right understanding of the gospel. And he begins the chapter, doesn't he, by warning us that it's important to be really clear about how anyone can be good enough for God. So look down with me at verse 1. Paul says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. In other words, this is serious business. Paul wants to protect these people from getting it wrong because, quite honestly, so much depends on it, doesn't it? So he continues, verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now that is very, very strong language. What he's saying is that there were people hanging around the church in Philippi saying something like this. Well, you know, you can be good enough for God if you keep certain rules, like eating special food, uh, or wearing special clothing, or performing special ceremonies. If you do those things, you can be good enough for God, but if you don't, you've got no chance. And Paul responds to what those people were saying by pointing to himself, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if anyone thinks they can be God's friend, that they can be good enough for God because of the impressive things that they've done, Paul says, no, no, you've got to start by comparing yourself with me. Look at my track record. Well, what was his track record? Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, 
as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, friends, there are, I think, uh, in this, the language is remote to us, I know that. But there are three things here that Paul wants the Philippian Christians to take away from his personal testimony that are as true for us this morning as they were 2,000 years ago. And the first thing that Paul wants us to take away is this. My upbringing can't make me good enough for God. Now, Paul, you see, was given a disciplined religious upbringing. In verse 5, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. And circumcision, you remember, was the sign of God's covenant with Israel. And when Paul was writing this letter, the Jews had already been practicing circumcision for 2,000 years. And Paul's parents were very careful to make sure that their son was circumcised on the exact day appointed by God. And I think that's telling us that he was brought up in a disciplined religious atmosphere. He was also raised in a respectable family because he tells us that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, Benjamin, you remember, was the son who had been born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and uh, when Israel entered the promised land, the territory allocated to Benjamin included Jerusalem. So Paul had been raised in a privileged, highly respectable family. It also had a marvelous education. Verse 5, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's saying is that whilst most Jews in the first century spoke only Greek or Aramaic, Paul could actually speak Hebrew. So he didn't need an NIV or an ESV or the message because he could actually read his Old Testament Bible in the original language. He was a Hebrew not only by nationality but by education. So I'm sure you can see that Paul's parents had given him the ideal upbringing. It was actually the perfect start to life. And yet, Paul can say, my upbringing didn't make me good enough for God. During this past week, someone was telling me about a lecturer in international law at a very prestigious university. This man claimed that when he was marking the students' essays, he could tell just by reading the very first sentence what grade the essay would get. So he might say, that's an absolutely terrible first sentence. That essay is a D minus. Or that's a brilliant first sentence. I'm sure this is going to be a B plus. So students, take note. When you're writing your essays, do make sure the first sentence is good because the lecturer may never get beyond it. And I mention this because I think we sometimes think of God as being rather like that lecturer. We sometimes think that God reads, as it were, the first sentence of our lives. He sees how we began. He sees how we were brought up. He knows what our parents taught us. And based on that, 
He knows the grade that our lives are going to get at the end. And Paul says, no, no, that's quite wrong. How you were brought up doesn't matter. Whether you were brought up in a religious home or an atheist home doesn't matter. And where you were brought up doesn't matter either. In God's eyes, it doesn't matter whether you were brought up in Kenya, Korea, or Kent. Because the point that Paul wants to drum into you and me this morning is that our upbringing cannot make us good enough for God. So that's the first thing. Then secondly, Paul says, my performance cannot make me good enough for God. So look down with me at the end of verse 5. Talking about himself, the apostle says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, Paul, you see, was the most religious man you could ever meet. Uh, As a Pharisee, he belonged to the most respected school of thought in Israel. And there was absolutely nothing lukewarm about Paul. In matters of faith, he was, we would say, full on. He had a passionate zeal to to demolish anything that remotely resembled a threat to the faith of Israel. And he boasts that he kept every single one of the Jewish religious laws perfectly. Now surely, God would want someone like that on his team, wouldn't he? A man from the right family with the right education, a faultless track record. I mean, just think about it. There was no possibility, was there, of the rabbis waking up one morning and finding some dreadful scandal about Paul on the front page of the newspaper because his track record was faultless. But, says Paul in verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. My performance never could make me good enough for God. My efforts were based on a massive misunderstanding. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I know so many people who said to me that actually their upbringing does make them good enough for God, or that their performance makes them good enough for God. But I have to tell you, you will not find that idea anywhere on the pages of the New Testament. All the effort, all the hard work you put in cannot earn you friendship with God. And that's because God's standards are quite simply too high. But I have lost count, I think, of the number of times I've heard people say, as long as I try my best, as long as I'm sincere, God will accept me. Now, do you think that's right? Maybe you are a very sincere person, a genuine person. You all seem very genuine to me. And you do think to yourself, well, actually... God knows me better than anybody, and he knows how sincere I am. He knows how nice I am. He's bound to let me into heaven. And, of course, you know perfectly well that if we sit with that way of thinking for long enough, in the end, we begin to develop, don't we, our own mental scorecard 
of who qualifies for heaven and who doesn't. And so obviously uh, Hitler and uh, bin Laden and uh, most of the Taliban, well, they're excluded. Uh, God wouldn't want them spoiling heaven. And of course, there are the murderers and the, the rapists. I mean, they would ruin heaven, so they've got to be kept out. And what about the pornographers and um, the terrorists? Well, they would, they would really spoil heaven. They must be turned away. And who else? Thieves, cheats, people who spoil our lives here in so many different ways, surely they're not going to be good enough for heaven, are they? And who else would spoil heaven? Those who are unfaithful? Angry people, perhaps? Jealous people? I'm sure you can see where this is going. The point is, you see, that the bar is simply too high, and none of us, none of us are good enough for heaven. Some people imagine that God has this uh, pass mark that we've got to attain in order to get in, but that's not right. Uh, Paul says what the rest of the New Testament says, which is that our performance cannot make us good enough for God. I suppose you've got to look at it the other way too, haven't you? And you've got to say, well, you may have lived a very shameful life you may have lived the kind of life where no one would ever want you on their religious team. And maybe you think, well, I could never be good enough for God. Well, to you, I have to say that's not right either. It doesn't matter what our upbringing was, and it doesn't matter what our performance has or has not been, because God's pass mark is 100%. He demands perfection, and he will accept nothing less. So uh, think for a moment of the speed camera which flashes as your ancient Ford is doing 80 on the M3. And then just a moment later, a Ferrari whizzes past doing 180, and the speed camera flashes him as well, because you're both speeding. Now you might say, well, that's not fair. I was only doing 80. My ancient Ford could never do 180 in a million years. But you know perfectly well, don't you, that in the eyes of the law, you were both speeding. And you see, when it comes to being good enough for God, we've all been caught on God's camera. Some of us are proud of how we've lived. Some of us are ashamed of the way that we've lived. But the truth is, my dear friend, that all of us, at some time or other, have ignored God. We have all mistreated the God who made us. And by using himself as an example, Paul makes the point so clearly, doesn't he? My performance won't make me God's friend. Uh, in the novel, How to Be Good, by Nick Hornby, the main character is a doctor called Katie. <clears throat> and uh, there's a place where she says this, quote, I'm a good person in most ways, <clears throat> but I'm beginning to think that being a good person in most ways doesn't count for anything very much if you're a bad person in one way. 
So my upbringing cannot make me good enough. My performance can't make me good enough. And that brings us finally to the good news. And the third thing Paul wants us to take away from his own personal testimony. And that is that only Christ can make me good enough for God. Look down with me at verse 7, will you? Paul has just uh, recited his terribly impressive religious track record. And now in verse 7 he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul's saying he'd completely misunderstood how anybody can be good enough for God. Everything that he used to think would make him good enough, he now sees as completely useless. Those things are no use at all. They've got to be thrown on the rubbish dump. Now, of course, the the language of profit and loss comes, doesn't it, from the world of finance and accounting. And you will remember, I'm sure, that Jesus said that everyone will be called to give an account of their lives on the day of judgment. So just imagine for one moment that you are the accountant appointed by Almighty God to perform an audit on your life. Now, I'm hopeless at these things, but Michael is not. Michael is an expert. And if you ask him afterwards, he will tell you that when you're doing an audit, there has to be a credit column and a debit column. So can I ask you, what are you going to put in the credit column of your life? What are you most proud of? your academic achievement, your business success. Uh, Maybe it's your family background and their marvelous connections. Perhaps it's how well your children are doing. Whatever it is, mentally, you've put that down in the credit column. But after some time, you've been working on this for a few hours, the chief accountant comes along and he sees what you've done and he says, well, I'm terribly sorry, but we've introduced a brand new accounting system this morning. Now, obviously nobody told you, I'm terribly sorry, but it means you've left out the most important thing of all. And as a result, absolutely everything that you've put in your credit column has got to be transferred to the debit column. In fact, you may as well write it off. Now, if somebody said that to you, you'd be pretty shaken up, wouldn't you? But that is precisely what happened to the Apostle Paul. Every self-respecting Jew wanted a credit column like Paul. But when the risen Christ met him on the Damascus Road, everything changed. Because suddenly, for the first time, he saw that something infinitely more important must go in the credit column. He says it's the greatest possession, the most valuable thing anybody can ever have. And yet it's so very simple, isn't it? In his words, knowing Christ. Because you see, only Christ can make us good enough for God. 
And when he saw that, the Apostle Paul found himself saying, do you know what, I'm ashamed that I used to value those other things so highly. My upbringing, get rid of it. My performance, get rid of it. Has that happened to you? Perhaps you're not sure. Paul, I think, shows us very simply and clearly how this works. Look with me at verse 8 again, please. He says, I consider everything, uh, for these purposes, my upbringing and my performance, a loss. And the word is a strong word. It means dung, manure. End of verse 8. That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. That's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, for the apostle to say? Isn't it? Does that surprise you? It should do. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So how then does Jesus make me good enough for God? Paul gives us two answers. First, Jesus deals with my rejection of God because he died for me. On our own, none of us qualify to be God's friend. We may have had a good home. We may have had an unhappy home. We may have had no home at all. But none of us are good enough for God because of our sin. And contrary, you see, to what so many people think today, sin is not a word that's reserved for the most horrendously evil people you can think of. No, in the New Testament, sin is me putting myself at the center instead of God. That's how the Bible defines sin. And all of us, without exception, have done it and still do it. And because all of us have done it, none of us are good enough for God. And only Jesus can make us good enough for God because only Jesus never sinned. He always pleased his father. And yet the sinless Jesus died. And we were thinking about that, weren't we, a couple of weeks ago in that marvelous hymn in chapter 2. And we saw, didn't we, that when Jesus died, he swapped places with me. Because I deserve to die for the way that I've mistreated God. I deserve to be separated from God and from everything good forever. That's what the second death is all about. But God treated Jesus as if he was me so that he could treat me as if I was Jesus. And so when I put my trust in Jesus, God unites me to him and Jesus pays the penalty for my sin. And the perfect relationship 
that Jesus had with his Father in heaven is ripped apart so that the broken relationship that I have always had with God can be perfectly restored. And so now, God says, Simon, because of Jesus, you are good enough to be in my family. Ian Thorpe was one of the heroes at the Olympic Games in Sydney in the year 2000. And uh, some of you may remember that he returned from those games with a record number of gold medals. Uh, But four years later, as he was preparing for the Olympics in Athens, and he took place in the trials, as he was waiting for the trials to begin, he slipped off the blocks and fell into the pool. And uh, under the rules, that meant he was disqualified. So he was out, Thorpe was out. And uh, his teammate, Craig Stevens, took his place. Uh, Thorpe, of course, understandably, was absolutely heartbroken because he wasn't going to be able to defend his title in Athens. But then something extraordinary, totally unexpected, happened. Craig Stevens pulled out. Uh, Craig Stevens had earned his place. He had qualified. Thorpe was disqualified. But Stevens gave up his place so that Thorpe could be reinstated. No one could believe it at the time. And Stevens put it like this. He said, I've made the decision to stand aside in the hope that I will see Ian swim in the final. It's a decision that comes from my heart. And uh, so an absolutely stunned Ian Thorpe actually did get to compete in Athens and once again cleaned up the medals. But for a while it didn't look like that was even remotely possible. Thorpe was out. Stevens was in. Thorpe was disqualified. Stevens was qualified. But Stevens gave up his place so that Thorpe could come in. And that, you see, is what Jesus has done for you and for me. When he died on the cross... He was innocent. We saw that in chapter 2. He gave up his place in heaven. He gave up the glory that was rightly his so that you and I can come in and be God's friend. So how does Jesus make me good enough for God? Well, first, he deals with my rejection of God by dying in my place. And secondly... Jesus gives me eternal life with God because he rose from the dead. Look with me at verse 10. I want to know Christ, says Paul, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, the point there is that God doesn't want people to be good enough for a while, for a short time. He wants friends who will be with him forever. And when Jesus makes us God's friends, we're not just friends for a short while, we are friends forever. Because just as Jesus Christ rose from the grave, of an endless life, 
in the same way Christians also rise from death. And Paul says in verse 11, he's really looking forward to it. So you see, when we baptize a new Christian, and we normally do that in January or February when our swimming pool at home is warm, when we do that, we are anticipating their death as they go down into the water, and we anticipate their resurrection as they emerge from it. And that's because, you see, friends, death is not the end. No doubt Brenda and Elias are thinking about that this morning. I pray they are. And those that Jesus makes good enough for God will be friends with God forever. And it means, you see, that when we fail the Lord as Christians, and we do, he never leaves us. And uh, when we feel weary and discouraged in the Christian life, and we do, he never leaves us. And when we face death, as we all will, he will never leave us. And with absolute confidence, we can look almighty God in the face, knowing that we are forgiven completely and loved unconditionally. Because Jesus deals with my rejection of God by dying for me and because he gives me eternal life with God because he rose from the grave. So, my dear friend, please do not misunderstand the Christian message. Don't carry on assuming you know the truth if you don't. Your upbringing won't make you good enough for God. Your performance will never make you good enough for God. Only Christ can make you good enough for God. So will you trust in him? Will you trust in all that he's done for you? And if you haven't, won't you do it this morning? Well, let's be quiet for a moment and I'll lead us in prayer. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of you, we can be good enough for God. Not because of our upbringing, not because of our performance, but solely because of you and all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross that deals with our rejection of God so that we can be forgiven. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you rose again so that when we trust in you, we are God's friends forever. Please help us to hold on to these tremendous truths and all that they mean for us. And we ask for your name's sake.